welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on December 11th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. Editor-in-Chief Mariette DiCristina joins me for a discussion of the contents of the December issue of Scientific American magazine on this episode. We'll look once again at this year's Science Nobels after that, and we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Mariette DiCristina, who has been our acting editor-in-chief, but was named our permanent editor this past week. We spoke in her suddenly bigger, more opulent office. The December issue is out. Mariette DiCristina is our editor-in-chief. Hi, Mariette. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Sure. So uh, some interesting stuff. The big cover article, World Changing Ideas, is actually a section, really, not an article. Yes, it's a 10-page section on 20 spectacularly innovative ideas for the future of the world. And it's not just the two of us in this room today. No, today we also are joined by Michael Moyer. Hello, Internet. So, Michael, you actually put this whole section together. I did put the whole section together, though I should be clear, I did not come up with the 20 World Changing Ideas myself. We actually went and found some of the um, the greatest uh, ideas and most creative ones floating around in, uh, in academia and people in startup companies and things coming out of the labs that hopefully will be impacting the world in the next decade or so. And it's the section is generally divided into five smaller areas. Mm-hmm. There's uh, five main categories we addressed: uh, energy, uh, health and medicine, the environment, uh, electronics and robotics, and transportation. So let's uh, let's talk about you know just a couple of let's whet the audience's appetite and uh, just give us a couple of uh, the the primo examples from those sections. Sure. Well, one I really like a lot is the uh, Central Nervous System for the Earth Project, which is being done right now at Hewlett Packard. And um, the idea behind this is that if you place uh, lots and lots of tiny sensors uh, everywhere around the world where you think you might be interested in some sort of data, and you, you, you can just measure very basic things such as vibration and humidity and temperature and what have you, uh, by agglomerating all that data together, and, and we're talking trillions of sensors here, you're going to get uh, this kind of broad base of information that you will have incredible applications that you really can't foresee now. In a way, I think of it as a lot like the Internet. When you create this infrastructure, you can't predict 10 years down the line what kind of applications are going to come out of the Internet. All you know is that when you have this very broad and widely applicable kind of uh, information technology infrastructure that you're going to be able to do great things. Isn't this like uh, what uh, Batman pulled in the second the second Christian Bale's Batman movie where he had all the cell phones sending out sonar and he was able to image the entire city? Uh, it, it It is something like that, yes, except you don't get the full 3D pictures of uh, people behind closed walls. Yes. Right, but you'll actually be able to sort of get the the pulse of the planet in real time, every little thing that's going on. Well, what are the sensors actually going to be measuring? Right now they're trying to um, pull together two different competing um, forces in a way. Whereas on one hand, you want them to be able to measure as much as possible. On the other hand, you want them to consume as little power as possible and to be as small and as cheap as possible. So they're, they're concentrating on the basics right now. Temperature, um, vibration, they're, they're developing these very extremely sensitive accelerometers, kind of the same sort of thing that you'd have in a Nintendo Wii, where you're able to measure, you know, how, how everything moves, except this is just on the order of little, little micro shakes. Um, and uh, humidity, uh, all sorts of these things. And by agglomerating that kind of uh, data together on a roadway, in a forest, whatever, what have you, um, you're able to, to create a, this kind of very rich picture of the world. 
Just to add uh, to what Michael was saying, when you can gather that kind of really simple information, did something move a little bit, like the accelerometer gra- gathers or what is the temperature change or things like this, the implications of this, as the article explains, this particular item explains, is you could, for instance, put these sensors all over a bridge, and if the bridge was starting to have structural flaws in it, if things were shifting that shouldn't shift, the bridge could then say to the engineers, I have issues here. Come and come and look at me. And boy, we could have used that in, in Minnesota when that happened um, just a couple of years ago. Another example would be imagine a building that could ma- monitor and track its own energy use and tune it up or down. You know, you, you have to hook these sensors in with larger um, processing power so that they could then make collective decisions such as we would set in them, you know, to, you know, produce a, a reality that we would like to see. Very cool. So let's talk about some of the other things that are in the section. Well, one of the things that I really like is um, uh, this idea behind a new way to get solar out to the people. Um, as uh, many people know, our own George Musser here is installing solar pa- panels on his home in New Jersey. Actually, purchasing solar panels and having them installed on your home is the functional equivalent of prepaying your electric bill for about a decade, you know, thousands of dollars, and, and really, who wants to do that? And we should say that many people know about it because George has been blogging about his efforts to do this for the last few months. The blog is called Solar at Home for anybody who wants to check that out. Yes, indeed. So George, um, George is, is going through the process and, you know, and there's some, um, uh, some ups and downs in it. Startup companies in California uh, have come up with a new way to do it where they will actually give you solar panels on your home for free. They will come and install them and there is no upfront cost to you. In return, you enter into an agreement with them whereby you buy the power that is coming off of the top of your house from these companies. You buy it at at or below market rates. And in that way, it's, it's in this, it's the same thing as just paying your regular electrical bill, except that you're getting clean solar panel from the top of your house. And you're selling them the energy that you harvest from solar. You're buying from them the energy that they are harvesting off the top. Of right, the house. right. Gotcha. Yes. So, so, uh, uh, you know, um, Solar City and Sunrun are the two big companies doing this in, uh, in California. It's spreading to Oregon, uh, Arizona, uh, these sorts of places. There are also municipal plans where your municipality, your city or town will give you incentives to purchase a solar system. So for instance, you put up the upfront money and then you get that off in tax rebates and, uh, and lower tax incentives over the, uh, the life of your home. One of the things I love about this solar at home, which is characteristic of a lot of the world changing ideas, are that many of these ideas are so simple and so straightforward and yet so powerful. And another one that's like that that I'd like to add to this discussion is in the environment category, the idea of zoning in the oceans. You know, you would expect you walk down, you walk down the street and here's an industrial area in, in, um, you know, on land here and here's a, or here's an area that where people put their houses. Now in the ocean, we have nothing like that right now. We have, a huge area that the U.S. actually the U.S. is in control of about 25 percent more seascape than it has landscape, and all of this is is controlled through a set of really disconnected um, heads of of uh, various policies. Right now, there might be somebody in charge of fisheries, and then there's somebody in charge of what chemicals are permitted to be uh, poured in there. And imagine none of them are really communicating with each other. So. A great idea for a solution there to improve the you know, ocean environment, especially near to shore, is to zone it for particular uses. Yeah, that, uh, on the face of it, that sure makes a lot of sense, <laughs> considering that right now it's it's almost, if you will, a land grab. 
It, it is almost Delangrad. That's a, that's a good way to put it. And in fact, we felt so strongly about it as a board of editors that we decided in the perspectives, the house editorial, uh, for this issue as well. We also examined why, why, you know, why should we draw these invisible lines? I'm not going to say in the sand, right, Steve, but the invisible lines in the water and, um, that could direct what would be okay and not okay and where. So what else do we have in the section? Well, um, also in the section, uh, we highlight the use of what are called biomarkers uh, to be able to uh, detect and uh, perhaps prevent disease. And biomarkers are actually a, a, a pretty, uh, it's a pretty simple idea behind them. And it's that as disease begins to grow within you, as a heart disease starts up or, or the very early stages of cancer, those processes actually leave little traces in your body and in your blood. Those, those uh, malicious processes, you know, um, uh, create new proteins or they have certain DNA signatures. And biomarkers are simply the, the idea of by taking a blood sample and searching for these signatures that you're able to see far in advance, uh, long enough in advance so that you can really do something uh, about it, um, that you're at high risk for getting heart disease. Uh, or for getting cancer. Uh, it's not quite as simple as that because, as we all know, the processes that go into creating these sorts of um, lifestyle diseases when you're in your 60s or 70s or, you know, unfortunately sometimes earlier are incredibly complex. And so what you're, you're not looking for one tell, telltale big neon sign. You're looking for this very intricate set of changes between how all these proteins interact and, but, um, but with the intersection of biology and, and information science, this in, informatics that's going on, they're able to start to tease out what these signatures are. Right. And if we have the ability to do that, we might as well do it because there's a lot of information available that uh, right now is just getting lost in the ether. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and the idea that you can just go to your doctor and have a blood sample and through that blood sample, you know, get this list of, okay, you're okay for this, um, but you should really watch out for this as we go down the line. And then also to see how these sig- signals are changing over time. You get this done once a year and, um, and, and you can show progress. You could show that this thing is actually getting worse. It's a very powerful, proactive way to deal with health. Again, a, a simple, powerful idea. And the last category, which we haven't talked about, which I'd, I'd like to talk about for just a minute, is the transportation category. And there was saluting the idea of um, making greater use of plug-in hybrid technology, which is where you, you know, you have a dual uh, uh, propulsion system for your car. On the one hand, you run off of battery power, and that you can plug in and charge overnight or at other times when the grid is not at peak levels. And then you can have a very efficient engine of some kind that can pick up for when that battery power runs out. Yeah, the plug-in hybrid is going to be a big deal next year. I think it's next year the Volt comes out. Yeah, they they still say that they're on track for bringing out the Chevy Volt, um, which is going to be the first mass market plug-in hybrid uh, about a year from now, November 2010. When I first heard about the Volt a few years ago and heard that it only gets 40 miles on a charge, I thought that was kind of ridiculous. But the more I've read about it, the more it's it's not so crazy because so many of us who are not commuting in the car don't use 40 miles at a shot. We might use 40 miles in a whole day and then you could just charge it up overnight. And, uh, 40 miles isn't just before the battery totally runs out. You go 40 miles before the 
engine has to first kick in uh, to, to help yourself out. And they've done studies, and most of us, most people uh, who, who commute actually commute less than 40 miles in a day. So for most people, uh, you wouldn't ever have to use that gasoline engine. It really just exists in case you uh, want to do a 100-mile trip or you want to go on a road trip. In that case, you're able to go as far as you want. And actually, the range to the bolt, they say, is going to be something around five or 600 miles between fill-ups you'll have to do. That's so it's also going to have a very large gas tank. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to get, uh, you know, Chevy has come up with a number that they're going to get 230 miles to the gallon. A lot of people have kind of taken a closer look at that number and said, well, maybe that's, uh, maybe, you know, uh, we don't know exactly how they came up with that number. But it's going to be, it's going to be a great improvement over what we have today. I think one of the keys here too is, is it's not just whatever the battery gives you. Okay. So maybe the battery gives you 40 miles, but then you have a very energy efficient engine. Maybe that's packaged with that battery. One of the prototypes that the article mentions by, uh, is called the idea prototype. And I think it's, Micah will correct me, is it by Bright Automotive? Um, gets 40 miles to the gallon. So, so you go from the 40 miles, um, uh, on the charge for the battery to the 40 miles on the gallon car. And that can take you pretty far. And, and also to be clear, that that idea prototype is not just for a, a midsize sedan; it's for a delivery truck. You know, this is this is for things that typically get ten miles to the gallon. So it's it's really a huge advance. That's five of the twenty. We'll we'll let the readers find the other fifteen. And uh, just real quickly, let's talk about some of the other things that are in this issue. We've got uh, th- this fascinating article on the the ancient Greek. Um, computational device which was called the antikythera mechanism and we're not going to talk about that because i'm going to try to get the author of that uh for another for an interview for another episode but you'll see the article in the issue and just you know look at it on the website or in the issue it's really fascinating uh arctic climate threat is one of our cover lines uh with the permafrost possibly going bye-bye it's there's stored methane that's being released Right. Here's a, here's a huge problem. As the climate has been warming up, we've been thawing the permafrost and it, it's called permafrost, right? Because it's supposed to stay permanently frozen, but actually. It ain't no. temper frost. Right. It's not temper frost. <laughs> now we're getting freeze thaw cycles where it had been frozen solid for, for years and years. And there are a number of surprising and kind of, uh, very disturbing consequences as a result of this. One of them is that as the ground thaws, Pools of water um, come together under the ground, and in those pools are microorganisms that begin to feed on stored carbon, so old plant material and so on that's been buried for thousands of years. And as those microbes do their job, which is what they do, they break up things, they create methane gas, which then comes up in large, you know, sometimes large um, pools or expulsions of methane. The, the reason why do we care about methane? Well, methane pound per pound has about 25 times the heat trapping power of carbon dioxide. And as large a problem as carbon dioxide is, if methane should begin to be released in greater quantities, it could really affect the speed of, of global climate change that we're now experiencing. And we have, an, everybody remembers their ATP from high school biology, the currents, the energy currency carrier in, in the cell. But we have an article that says it, it actually leads a secret double life. <laughs> it does lead a secret double life, which is, I don't know, so amazing. One of the things I'm constantly struck by is how nature doesn't waste things, right? Uh, so, so high school biology, we all learned about ATP being the energy currency that, um, 
that is uh, used by all the cells. And, you know, currency makes me think of, of money in dollars. And we all know that money talks. So maybe it shouldn't be such a surprise that ATP also has a signaling capacity in cells, um, whether that's in the brain where it's, you know, actively helping signal some neural transmissions or other areas, you know, organs and systems in the body. Literally ATP, as it turns out, seems to be involved in almost every cellular process that we can conceive of. And the article has a whole map of the human body with places where ATP has a vital signaling role, not just one of conveying energy units. Did you prepare that money talk? It just came to me. <laughs> great. So, uh, so speaking of transportation, which was in the world changing ideas, oh, you, you know how I, I love our 50, 100, 150 years ago section. And in December 1909, well, even we knew that this was nuts. But, uh, the, uh, the headline is Flying Railway. And, uh, you know, for those of us who, who live in New York City, where, uh, in, in the, not in Manhattan, uh, but in the surrounding boroughs, we still have elevated trains where the subway tracks are over the roads. But th- these guys had this fabulous idea. Let me read it to you. Uh, this is a quote from our December 1909 issue. A German engineer has conceived a novel and marvelously impracticable mode of transit, a sort of cross between the airship and the electric railway, in which a balloon supports the weight of passenger cars, which run on aerial cables and are propelled by electricity. And then it says, see illustration, and that's what really makes the whole thing worthwhile. Uh, the balloon is of the rigid Zeppelin type of construction and is propelled by electric motors capable of developing an airspeed of about 125 miles per hour. There are engineering as well as financial objections to this scheme. And then the illustration shows what look like blimps with the little carriages hanging from the bottom of the blimp that the pilot and the few passengers a blimp can carry are sitting in. Only then the blimps are tethered on each side to lines that are then connected to uh, stanchions and... These things are allegedly going to roll across, uh, you know, maybe 30 feet in the air at 125 miles an hour while the people sit in the, in the little cabins below. Um, it never got off the ground, so to speak. <laughs> Sorry. I gotta say, Steve, I love it that you picked that one because I was also agog when I saw it and I had, um, you know, two thoughts. One was, uh, a whole new meaning to Elevated train, which you have pointed out. The second was, I thought, is there finally something that makes maglev start to look more practical? Oh, no question. (laughs) Maglev is the, you know, that's the salt of the earth compared to this thing. And uh, also a shameless self-promotion. If you turn to the back page, you'll find my latest uh, contribution to the decline of Western civilization is an article, a column about uh, the science of knuckle cracking. And, uh, well, it, it goes something like this. The Nobel Prizes were actually awarded this week, and the laureates' lectures are all now available online. So if you want to hear about the award-winning research from the horses' mouths, just go to www.nobelprize.org. But since you're here right now, let's review the winners by listening to our daily podcast coverage once again of the three science prizes from back in October. 
2009 Nobel Prize in Chemistry goes to Venkatraman Ramakrishnan of the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in England, Yale University's Thomas Stites, and Ade Yanath of the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel for their studies of the ribosome. Gunnar von Henne of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences at the official announcement. The three laureates have accomplished what many scientists thought impossible, namely to determine the three-dimensional structure of the molecular machine that makes all the proteins in a cell, the so-called ribosome. Using X-ray crystallography to obtain snapshots of the ribosome in action, they have been able to explain how the ribosome selects and couples together amino acids to form proteins. They have also shown how bacterial ribosomes can be stopped dead in their tracks by various antibiotics, thereby providing insights that help researchers design new drugs to be used in our never-ending fight against bacterial infections. The 2009 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine goes to Harvard's Jack Shostak, Johns Hopkins' Carol Greider, and Elizabeth Blackburn at UC San Francisco for their work on how chromosomes are protected by telomeres and the enzyme telomerase. The Nobel laureate's research helped explain how an organism's DNA is successfully copied when cells divide. Telomeres are genetic sequences that act like little protective caps at the end of chromosomes. Think of the sealed tips of your shoelaces. Telomerase is the enzyme that builds telomeres. Blackburn and Jostak determined that it was a specific DNA sequence in the telomeres that kept chromosomes from fraying whenever they were copied when a cell splits in two. Blackburn and Greider discovered telomerase. The findings have implications for the understanding of aging and cancer, because if the enzyme keeps the telomeres robust, the chromosomes stay protected and the cell's aging is slowed. And in cancer cells, which unfortunately do not seem to age, telomere length is maintained virtually indefinitely. Jostak, Greider, and Blackburn thus revealed one of life's basic mechanisms and paved the way for new medical strategies. Carol Greider and Elizabeth Blackburn co-authored the article Telomeres, Telomerase, and Cancer for the February 1996 issue of Scientific American Magazine. It's available in our digital archive at www.siamdigital.com. Jack Shostak co-authored the article The Origin of Life on Earth in the September 2009 issue of Scientific American Magazine, available on our website. And to hear an archived interview with new Nobel laureate Jack Shostak, go to the May 7th 2008 episode of Science Talk, available at www.scientificamerican.com slash podcast. The Nobel Prize in Physics goes to Charles Cao of Standard Communications Labs in England and the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and George Smith and Willard Boyle of Bell Labs in New Jersey. Cao figured out how to transmit light over long distances in optical glass fibers. From the official announcement, Today, more than a billion kilometers of optical fiber around the world forms the backbone of modern global communication. In 1969, Smith and Boyle made your digital camera possible by inventing the charge-coupled device, the CCD. This device allows electronic recording of images, and it replaces the photographic film in cameras. And the CCD records the image as a distribution of charge in small cells or pixels, and it outputs the image as a series of digital numbers. The CCD is a crucial component of advanced cameras, and it finds numerous applications in scientific and medical equipment. For example, it gives us the spectacular images of the universe that we can see today. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, China is expected to pass the U.S. in car sales 
in 2025. Story 2, Duncan Watts at Yahoo Research predicts that the James Cameron movie Avatar will gross between 65 and $84 million its first weekend. Story 3, a neuroscience center in Canada is asking NHL and minor league hockey players to donate their brains. And Story 4, ink doped with carbon nanotubes could turn plain white paper into batteries. Time's up. Story 4 is true. Scientists have converted plain white office paper into batteries by adding ink-containing carbon nanotubes, which conduct electricity. The research appeared in the December 7th Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. For more, check out the news story, Carbon Nanotubes Turn Office Paper into Batteries, at scientificamerican.com. Story 3 is true. The Kremble Neuroscience Center is asking NHL and minor league hockey players for their brains. After they die, of course. They're trying to get a handle on concussions and the suspected link between major head impacts and dementia. For more, check out the December 8th edition of our neuroscience podcast, 60 Second Psych. And story two is true. Watts and colleagues developed an algorithm for predicting movie grosses based on search activity. Right now, Avatar searches are tracking those of Wolverine, which had an opening weekend gross of $87 million. The Yahoo Research publication, What Can Search Predict?, is available online free. Just Google What Can Search Predict. All of which means that story one about China passing the U.S. as the world's biggest car market in 2025 is totally bogus. Because what is true is that two years ago, J.D. Power and Associates predicted that China would become the world's largest market for automobiles in 2025. But the Chinese government has actually been subsidizing car sales, including SUV sales, and they have already passed the U.S. as the world's biggest car market. When the effects of pollution, sedentary lifestyle, and gas prices become apparent, look for articles in the New York Times headlined, Chinese Rediscover the Bicycle. I predict uh, you'll see that article in about 2025. Well, that's it for this episode of Science Talk. Follow us on Twitter as Siam, S-C-I-A-M. Follow me as Steve Mursky if you've got nothing better to do. And check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news and our slideshow on deep water ocean currents and climate change. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Ooh.